Maria, welcome to First Up. It's Ratu, Tuesday the 16th of August, Con Trubridge Ho. Coming up, those of you in the Upper South Island, take care out there. It's going to be wet and wild this morning. Weather Watch's Philip Duncan will join us with the latest. Nationals Deputy Nicola Willis gives us her take on the allegations of bullying by Labour MP Gaurav Sharma against his own party and how it's been handled. Plus, a breakthrough study has come to come as music to the ears of some people suffering from the debilitating condition of tinnitus. It's been hugely beneficial to me. I'm so pleased that I was proactive and sought it because I've heard that once you have tinnitus, it's for life, basically. Maria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nick Trubridge and for Nathan Vardy. We're going to start in the UK where our weeks of hot weather are set to break into thunderstorms. But first, there are calls for a freeze of a non-weather kind. Our correspondent, Ali Jay, is joining us. Morena, Ali. Morena, Nick. Let's start with that, uh, with that price freeze. Who's promising it? What's it all about? Fill us in. Yes, so this is all to do with the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. He's come out, he's laid out his plans to tackle rising living costs. So that's what this is about. So he's he's said today that he's going to uh, promise a price freeze on energy bills and keep them at an average of £1,900 a year. So that's what they're at at the moment, which is above what they were earlier this year. And they're currently forecast to keep going up and up and up. So this move, if they were allowed to do it, the Labour government are in opposition at the moment. But this move is one that could save an average £1,000 per household per year. So he's been saying today, doing lots of interviews, saying this has been fully costed. Um, this would raise this money by um, putting these windfall taxes onto fuel companies uh, dating back to January. So it would take a little, a little slice of these huge profits that energy companies have been making as the price of fuel has been going up um, through the year. And he's saying today, He's coming under fire um, for how would they afford it if they could put this in. And he says it's been fully costed. Um, This tax would uh, help raise £8 billion. Um, And he's also announced that he would bring in a support for those not covered by the fuel cap. So this is what he's calling a radical plan to take us through winter. Again, it's they are in opposition. So it is something that he can suggest. But over the past over the past few weeks, the Labour Party here have kind of come under criticism for not really bringing out any policies, not really having uh, a sort of vociferous opposition to what's happening in government at the moment. And so he's come out saying as well that the current government aren't doing anything. And he's accusing uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak of not really producing any credible proposals. And in the meantime, there's still, well, you're still without a prime minister, aren't you? Uh, what, what are the government saying about this? It's, it's a slight issue, I suppose. Well, at the moment, I mean, we've seen videos at the moment that um, Boris Johnson is apparently in Greece. He's on another another holiday. There are videos emerged right. in a in a supermarket there. Um, and Number Ten have released a statement as well, saying they he is still working, but they're only contacting him if it's urgent, which is quite um, which is a little bit unbelievable, I suppose. People are calling it the phrase that's going around here is a zombie government. So obviously not his supporters. We heard a lot of them come out today and say that's not what's happening. He's not slacking off. Um, we've seen as well two removal vans turn up at number 10. So he is getting ready to go. In the meantime, yesterday, the Chancellor here, Nadim Zahawi, announced an extra bit of cash as well. He said that the 
Treasury uh, is drafting these plans to pay energy suppliers to cut bills by an extra £400 over winter. And that's also in an effort to help people with these with these price rises that we've never really seen before. Um, but any new prime minister who came in could veto this too. I mean, Boris Johnson has said that he the reason he's taken a step back is he doesn't want to uh, make any big announcements before the new prime minister. Um, but it's seen at the moment as being a bit MIA still. Um, both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have said that they wouldn't want to put in a windfall tax on fuel companies and they've promised more support, but it's not yet 100% clear what this looks like. Um, the interesting thing here is as well, Keir's policy, Keir Starmer's uh, policy that's come out did have quite a lot of support uh, amongst some Conservative Party voters, which is not ideal for the Conservative Party, but it could mean that we might see a bit of movement from Rishi Sunak is trust in the next couple of days, but I really think that is unlikely. So still working, but in Greece. I think he was away somewhere last time we spoke as well, but, you know, okay, still contactable by phone. Hopefully he doesn't have his, uh, what is auto-reply saying, um, you know, message my uh, my secretary or something, because yeah. it's a pretty big job, isn't it? Hey, very, very quickly, uh, good news about the new COVID jab, right? Yes, so a new jab has been approved by the UK medical body today. So this is the first in the world which would combat the original COVID strain and also the Omicron strain. And they're saying that this could be rolled out here in the autumn. They're planning for this big booster um, campaign to be rolled out in the autumn ahead of winter here. Um, and so it has been, it's manufactured by Moderna. It's known as the spike back bivalent original slash Omicron. It's a very catchy name. Uh, and we should be rolled out in the next couple of months for people yeah. over 18 and vulnerable groups. A very catchy name indeed. Thanks, Ellie. Ellie J there from London. It is 11 minutes past five. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nick Trubridge. We're keen for your feedback. Uh, of course, as you heard in the intro, we're talking tinnitus this morning. Uh, have you had it? Have you got it? How do you cope with it? And uh, also, if you're down south, particularly on the west coast, which is supposed to be where it's going to get really bad, uh, how's the weather where you are? How are you preparing? Are you sandbagging? Are you going to work or are you skipping work? You can text us, 2101. You can tweet us at firstuprnz or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at firstup. Uh, to Afghanistan, if the Taliban takeover this time last year wasn't enough, the Afghan people are into their fourth year of drought. This has led to economic collapse and growing impoverishment. The BBC's Lee's Dosit went to the highlands of central Afghanistan to see how some of the country's poorest are surviving. This is Chagcharan. It means a place where people eat dry straw. The name given a half century ago, in memory of a punishing drought. It's still written into this life, this land. Now the people of these central highlands are again living and dying in drought. Three years of it. Kushk is what you hear. Kushk means dry. Look at the wheat. The land is dry. The rivers are dry. There's not even snow on these stunning mountains. And look at the faces of these men. They've lived for decades with drought, with poverty, but nothing like they're seeing this year. 
Salam, salam, salam. And the world's crises have come to their door. Climate change is to blame. The conflict in Ukraine means fertilizer is scarce, prices high. Nothing is green. We can't farm. We don't have anything. We can't grow our wheat. How? Asked? It's dry. It's dry. We traveled with the British charity Afghan Aid. It's been working here for many years. They brought drought-resistant wheat. It's not enough. This year is the most severe and, and, and worst year in comparison to every year that we have been working here because of the, the drought, climate change. If that continues, yeah, there is a fear, but we should not allow to go to that situation that people are died because of, of not having food. The greatest fear, famine. There's already been signs of it this year in this province. The day we visit the only malnutrition clinic, there are nearly 40 patients, only 10 beds. Sigbatala is 15 months old. His mother died giving birth. It is a bad situation. It is worse than Yemen. It's worse than Yemen? Than Yemen, yeah. The main problem is the poor situation of the people. Their poverty is leading cause of this kind of illness. Poverty. The economy all but collapsed when the Taliban took over. The West stopped aid to their government, froze their assets. These are the men in charge here, the provincial cabinet. Taliban governor Ahmed Shah Dindost fought in the long war which ended last August. He tells me he was imprisoned, tortured by US forces. For him, this war isn't over. The present time hurt my pride. I will keep fighting until I'm dead. I'm not tired of fighting and I don't like peace. Younger, educated members of his team seem to take a different tack as the Taliban struggle to move from guns to government. The most important thing is the condition of the people, then the worsening economic condition of Afghanistan. The health crisis which is affecting Afghanistan right now needs attention and doesn't need to involve politics. We have to save people's lives. In a midsummer harvest, thoughts already turn to winter. What if humanitarian aid dries up and the Taliban don't do more for their people? a people who renamed their provincial capital. Not Chakcharan, eaters of dry straw, but Firozko, for their unshakable mountains, standing up to adversity, but searching for help. The BBC's least do set with that report. To Europe now, where, well, surprise, surprise, it's still hot. Wildfires are continuing to cause destruction on a massive scale and Russian tourists are rushing to apply for visas as calls grow to ban them from the EU. Well, joining me now from Germany is Nita Blake-Person. She's returning to the RNZ airwaves. Morning, Anita. Good tag, Nick. How are you? <laughs> really well, really well. Great to hear your voice. Uh, let's start with uh, those wildfires. Obviously, Europe's, you know, sort of had a horrendous wildfire season and it's about to get worse by the sound of it. 
It's scorching, absolutely, and it, it may not be surprising, but it certainly is alarming. Uh, the numbers are in, and it's nearly 660,000 hectares of European land that's already been destroyed by fires this year the worst since records began back in 2006. So uh, just to give you a sense, that's roughly a fifth of the size of Belgium, a huge area, uh, and it's tracking much worse than it ever has been, 56% higher than the previous record set over the same period in 2017. If we keep on as we are, Europe's on course to see more than a million hectares of land destroyed. Where are the hotspots? So in France right now, there are several large fires burning, but it's actually Spain that's been hardest hit so far this year, followed by Romania and Portugal. And I was looking at a map of Europe's fire danger just before, and there's huge swathes of it that are bright red, as that risk is still very real. And actually, we're only in the middle of the fire season right now, so lots of governments working on ways to manage those blazes, as, of course, forecasters say climate change is only going to make things worse in the coming years. Just changing tack slightly uh, to this issue of Russian tourists, the EU is, uh, well, there are calls for the EU rather to ban Russian tourists by not issuing them visas. How likely is that to happen? Yeah, it, it would require the EU's 27 members to all agree to it, so quite a push there. But there's certainly growing pressure to send a clear message to the Kremlin over its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's been nearly six months since the EU banned air travel from Russia, but thousands of Russians are still travelling to Europe on short-term or you know, tourist visas. So far, we've had leaders from Ukraine, Estonia, Latvia, Finland, Poland and the Czech Republic all saying these tourist visas need to stop and Russian citizens shouldn't be able to holiday in Europe while this war in Ukraine continues. Um, Not everyone's on board, though. Uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, for one, he's saying a blanket ban on visas for Russians is hard to imagine. And... Actually, not everyone on one of those short-term visas is headed away for a holiday. Russian activists say tourist visas are really important for many people trying to leave Russia, especially when they flee over land borders because flying out's either too expensive or you know too dangerous. Um, and this issue so up for discussion at a meeting by EU foreign ministers this month. So we'll see what they make of it then. And back where you are, uh, Germany's extremely popular. It is really popular, isn't it? Uh, Nine euro monthly pass. Uh, Travel pass is about to come to an end. Tell us about that. Uh, What is it going to be replaced with? Well, from a personal perspective, it's been incredible. Anywhere you want, right across the country, for nine euros. The entire month, Nick. Just great. Um, And just, you know, to hone in on how much of a bargain that is, it's usually nine euros 40 for just a day pass in Berlin. So this is a total steal. Uh, We're in our third and seemingly last month of this deal now. It was brought back in June to ease the pain of inflation. But, of course, that uh, time hasn't meant that things have gotten any cheaper. In fact, things are about to get a whole bunch more expensive as energy prices rise over winter. So everyone is looking around to see what comes next. There are a few options on uh, the go. Berlin's Mir wants a ticket allowing travel for the whole year for €365, €1 per day. Uh, The Greens want a Germany-wide ticket for €49 per month. But the finance minister is absolutely adamant that these discounts aren't going to continue beyond the end of the month. So the nine euro option, has it been a success? I suppose it depends who you talk to. You would say yes. I would say absolutely. Um, uh, yes, I'm a little bit biased on this one. Yeah. Uh, like Looking around, the trains are certainly packed, which not everyone has liked, and that's put a bunch of pressure on services at times. 
But, you know, the polls show that there is huge interest in this. There was one that came out the other day, 79% of respondents want the government to keep subsidising these tickets. So the pressure is there, the interest is there. And I am also hoping maybe the finance minister will find some money floating around and, you know, keep the good times rolling. Let's hope so. Come on, he can do it. Hey, thanks, Nita. Nita Blake-Person there joining us from Berlin. It has just gone 21 minutes past five. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, Nationals Deputy uh, Leader Nicola Willis on whether there's a culture of bullying in Parliament after the latest allegations by Labour MP Gaurav Sharma against his own party. Plus we'll ask her about her party's controversial welfare policy when it comes to people living with sickness and disability. Uh, and we'll get Philip Duncan on the line of course as, uh, well, buckets, buckets say, to say the least of rainfall across the Upper South Island. A new documentary series about young queer New Zealanders with disabilities will start streaming today on attitudelive.com and via Tahi. Justin Scott is one of the producers of the series called Disability. The goal for the series is to explore um, the lives of queer disabled people living in Aotearoa. Um, so it's mainly focused on um, you know, the lack of accessibility in queer spaces um, and also what pride looks like for this community. That's Disability T E. A, just to be clear. Uh, now, Mr Scott says he got involved with the project because the issues are close to his heart. I am really passionate about intersectionality. So I've been working with Attitude Pictures for four years now. We do the Attitude series, which is about some people living with disabilities. So as a queer man, I sort of thought, you know, how can I sort of mesh the two? And then um, I thought, you know, there's, there's a good pun in what's the T, which is a, a queer term for, you know, what's the truth? And then you sort of add disability onto it. And I thought, you know, that's rather clever. So that's sort of how it came about. Mr Scott says the series looks at venues that want to include queer individuals but often forget that some of them need to access places in a different way. A lot of queer spaces, for example, clubs along Hay Road, and you know they just lack accessibility. So a lot of them require you going down a flight of stairs. May not have disabled bathroom. So you know a lot of those factors affect queer disabled people getting into the door and into queer spaces. But things like pride as well. You know, often enough there's you know an attempt to make it accessible, but sometimes that attempt just doesn't quite meet the mark for people to sort of get through the door. So that's what the series sort of looks to explore. The series also looks at the issues faced by people with non-visible disabilities in the queer community. So we've got one episode which um, features drag performer Misty Frequency, um, who is Sakatapu and lives with autism. Um, so, you know, Misty is a performer sometimes going into queer spaces that can be quite overwhelming for them, um, living with autism. So, you know, I think being mindful of of that is, you know, something. Um, you know, something pumping music can be something that can be quite stressful for someone like Misty. Um, so I, I think, you know, a big thing sort of speaking to the community is, you know, not everything has to be nightclubs and and partying and all that stuff for it to be accessible for them. Um, so, you know, just sort of realising that is um, something I hope people sort of think about. Disability is on attitudelive.com and via Tahi today. Right, we are going to head to Taranaki now, where I spoke with local democracy reporting programme journalist Craig Ashworth. Always a pleasure to chat to. Uh, He's been looking at how the fight is shaping up for the new Māori seats at council tables across the region this year. Yeah, the fight's shaping up, although, to be honest, it looks more of a lovin' than a knockdown scrap. 
it's a very tight field of candidates standing for Māori wards after, like, behind the scenes, court it all to make the most of those new seats. So only eight candidates have been nominated for the five local Māori electoral roll seats across the region. Two of those seats have been filled unopposed in Stratford District Council and the Taranaki Regional Council. And so there's just two candidates that are going to contest each of the single New Plymouth and two South Taranaki wards. That's obviously not many candidates, is it? Uh, and, And there has been a bit of reporting that... I guess Māori have been reluctant, you could say, to shoulder the challenge of standing for public office? Yeah, no, I, I thought that speculation was a bit presumptuous, really. There's always, you know, like a flurry of last-minute nominations on the last day. And, and sure enough, all the Māori wards here in Taranaki have contenders, unlike a few of the general role seats and community boards. But anyhow, it turns out, rather than a lack of interest, there's been discussion ever since the Māori seats were confirmed about who should step up. So Wariakawano, he's the Tungu Wakarito of Takaui or Taranaki. That's the Taranaki Iwi's post-treaty settlement organisation, always a mouthful. And uh, Wariaka told me that the region's eight Iwi fought hard for the seats, and so it's important to maximise the gain. So r- rather than candidates not fronting, Nga Iwi or Taranaki have been strategising across the region, not so much formally, but he said, you know, rather at a sort of social hui and tangi, people have been shoulder-tapped, there's been discussion. Some have said, Carl, that bruising arena isn't for me, but others have said, yep, yeah, I'm up for it, I'll go. There will be, you know, people who say this all sounds a little bit undemocratic, you know, I guess people basically picking their their favoured choices. So how are they generally responding to that? Well, how do, how do people down there generally respond to those accusations? You know, I can see how that might be said, although, of course, interest groups or political parties have always put forward their chosen candidates. But, you know, I sort of see this more like a kind of socialised democracy, perhaps a little bit like the primary races in the USA, where the population kind of gets a say before the candidates are selected. So, you know, that this Maori way of considering leadership is taking the place of the more Pākehā view of sort of individual political champions with a couple of nominators. So the Kibu Pakarai of the post-settlement organisation for Ngārui Hini Iwi, uh, Te Aurangi Dillon, uh, told me that candidate selection has been very natural, very Māori. So, you know, kind of rather than a, a smoke-filled rooms conspiracy, she said it's more of a case of everyone knows each other. And she said the community vetting has been very effective, and, and she stressed the word purposeful. Her point was that when it comes to general seats, there's no real hardcore scrutiny over who stands and who doesn't. You just need your couple of signatures on the paper. But she says Māori are trying to be purposeful. She reckoned, I don't think anyone is backwards in saying, these are the right people for the job. This is what we want to do. This is the skill set that such and such has. So let's kind of collectively tell them to go for it. New councillors, you know, when they come in, they're often told they have to represent the whole community rather than simply the sector they've sprung from, I suppose. Is that going to happen here? Yeah, I think so. It's it's maybe a bit of a special case. I mean, there's a, there's a widespread view among those Māori trying to stake out this new ground that what's good for Māori is good for New Zealand, or in this case for Taranaki or whatever your region might be, or your district. It's certainly new ways to approach environmental issues or to try and solve cultural clashes and the likes of resource management, increasingly welcome within councils. I, I see that here all the time, and I assume that it's kind of the same across the country. But, you know, having said that, obviously the Māori wards are aimed at increasing, improving, empowering Māori participation and influence in local government. 
Benita Bigham of uh, Ngaruhine and Te Atiawa stood unopposed to fill the new Taranaki Regional Council Māori constituency. And she said discussions began months before nominations with iwi-seeking candidates who could, what she said, get the business done representing Māori interests. And she said, look, they don't just stand as an individual. They know that they're taking their whānau, their hapu and their iwi with them into local council chambers. And uh, Bigham was previously a South Taranaki councillor, and she now chairs the local government New Zealand's Tamaro Ata Committee to boost Māori representation. So she really kind of knows what the reality is. And she told me, look, we're there to represent our people and to give our perspective and to do justice to the kind of in- intergenerational lessons that have now come down to us from you know previous generations. So she says, look, it, it's good that local government has upped its game somewhat in Māori responsiveness and iwi responsiveness, and on the whole is trying to improve on how things were done in the past. But she said there's a ton of work yet to come, and these new representatives are going to be in the thick of that. And Nick, finally, all of those I spoke to are now really just hoping that the new seats will boost interest and boost the low number of Māori actually voting in council elections not only for their specialised representatives, but also for you know other general councillors and for mayors. Local democracy reporter Craig Ashworth there from Taranaki. Right, joining us now from our business team is Anand Zaki. Morena Anand. Morena, Nick. How are you? Yeah, really well, really well. Uh, nice early wake up again. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> hey, uh, what are you focusing on? Uh, house resale profits are falling. Yeah, well, no, no surprises here, is no. it? Uh, given the cooling housing market, uh, but um, uh, but also given how high house prices still are uh, at the moment. Um, but look, we have a survey from property research firm CoreLogic and. Uh, 98% of properties resold in the three months ended June, so that's the second quarter, uh, made a gain on the previous purchase. That's 1% down from the March quarter. But like I said, no surprise, but it's always good to uh, see the data about the health of the market gives us a good snapshot. Um, So in dollar terms, the median resale gross profit fell to $370,000 uh, from 418,000 in the March quarter and the record 440,000 at the end of last year at the peak of the market. So look, we are seeing a decreasing trend, but if you're a homeowner, the chances are uh, that you're still going to make a good profit. And the properties sold for profit have been owned for about seven and a half years. Now, for the 2% or so that sold at a loss, the median is uh, $40,000 and the loss-making resales were for properties that were owned for just over a year, uh, down from just over 2%, uh, just over two years rather in the March quarter. So if you're selling in a hurry, that's where the loss is likely to happen. Now, we spoke to Calvin Davidson, Chief Property Economist from CoreLogic, you'll hear more from him in our main business programs today. Uh, he's, also, he's also said the data we're seeing is uh, you know, no real surprise, but he did add that a turning point has arrived. And he said unless owners are downsizing or moving to a cheaper location, this really isn't a cash windfall because 
um, you know, because of the market conditions, sellers often need the the entire profit and then some to move into their next property. So it's not necessarily a cash profit unless uh, unless you know you're looking for a smaller house. And this is a bit, bit of an issue here, isn't it? We're just moving on to uh, to workers going back into work. Uh, I mean, you go down Queen Street some days at the moment, and it and it's well dead to be frank. Uh, but it's an issue in the UK with workers barely going into the office. Just quickly. Yeah, look, same here as well in Christchurch. Uh, but you know, we're in the era of hybrid working, and in the in the UK, things you know they're really taking it on board. It seems, and according to this new survey. Uh, from Advanced Workplace Associates. Uh, workers in the UK are going into the office an average of one and a half days a week with only 13% coming in on a Friday. Um, and average attendance uh, into the office is 29% with a peak of 39% midweek. Uh, North America and Latin America have uh, lower average attendances and banking in the, in, in, amongst the sectors, mm. banking had the highest average attendance uh, and tech unsurprisingly, perhaps, yeah. had the lowest. Yeah, one and a half times a week, jeez. And, the, and it's the businesses, you know, the coffee shops that lose out ultimately, isn't it? Hey, um, thanks, Anand. Uh, you can hear more from the business team at Morning Report at, uh, at 10 to 7. And while we're on business, let's take a look at the money markets. Our New Zealand dollar is worth 63.69 US cents, 90.59 Australian cents, 62.6 Euro cents, 52.77 British pence, 4.39 yuan, 84.88 Japanese yen. And if you're off to Honduras for whatever reason, whatever reason you're going to Honduras, one New Zealand dollar will buy you 15.65 Honduran Lempira, Lempira, L-E-M-P-I-R-A. I think I'm saying that right. Right, to weather. Uh, the Upper South Island is on high alert this morning after some areas are for, uh, were forecast to receive more than 500 millimetres of rain over the next couple of days. There's an orange rain warning in force for Buller, Westland and the Tasman district west of Motueka from early tomorrow morning, uh, from early tomorrow morning this morning, that says. There's also a heavy rain watch for the rest of the Tasman district, including Nelson, the Marlborough Sounds and the Bryant and Richmond Rangers. Well, joining us now is Philip Duncan from Weatherwatch. Morena. Morena, how are you? Really well, Philip. Uh, and, you know, relatively dry, thankfully. Uh, but there's been lots of rain overnight by the sound of it. Yeah, the rain's sort of starting to arrive. And um, the latest um, totals, you know, We've got a website, ruralweather.co.nz, and it's been designed to track rain. And the numbers that we're seeing this morning are really quite alarming for that northwestern corner of the South Island, the Tasman area out towards Tarkika. You know, we're seeing um, computer modelling that's indicating, you know, yesterday the headline was half a metre, which is an absolutely stunning number for that part of the country. But now we're seeing numbers that could be double that. It could be closer to one metre of rain, which is getting up there with sort of the rainfall that we saw with Cyclone Bowler, which has been, a, you know, that's uh, not not in that part of the country, but up around Gisborne all those years ago, that's, that's the sort of rainfall totals we were seeing. So this is now heading towards what could be a very serious event for that northwestern corner of the South Island. Because the media are always sort of, uh, yeah, well, you know, t- they're targeted when we do these weather stories. Yeah. But but this sounds, uh, it sounds like you, you have a relatively high level of concern, would it be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, if we're looking at somewhere like um, Tarkika, for example, um, you know, the rainfall numbers that we're seeing in that area uh, for today alone 
is 110 millimetres, and then tomorrow, 192 millimetres, and then the day after that, 93 millimetres, and the day after that, 75, and then another 40. That's, you know, that's half a metre of rain down at sea level, and usually you can, you can nearly double those totals for up in the ranges. And so uh, to, to show that it's not just um, rural weather and weather watch saying that, you know, when we look at the latest Met Service warning for that same area, they've got an orange warning um, saying, you know, there could be 800 millimetres in the ranges now. And Met Service, just like weather watch, we tend to be just a tiny bit conservative sometimes. And I, I almost wonder if the totals could be higher than that. So for this part of the country, that's a lot of rain. That's a lot of rain for Fiordland we'd be saying that would be significant. So I'm not trying to alarm people, just trying to get people really prepared that this could be something where some areas will be cut off, I think. And is it confined to that sort of, I think you said, that northwest area of the South Island? And and where there is it going to be particularly bad? Yeah, it's mostly, you know, coming in as a direct northerly, and we put up a tweet about this yesterday because some people were saying, well, how come the North Island's not getting it if it's a northerly coming in from the tropics? And if you look at a map, you know, the, that northwest corner out towards Takaka and Farewell Spit, if you go due north of there, the only other piece of land you reach is Cape Brianga. So there's no, there's no obstacle in the way for this rain, and the ranges around that Nelson area really cradle and hold it in when it comes in as a northerly. So from it's west of Nelson, heading out towards that Takaka area, that looks to me the area most exposed. But then there's also parts of the west coast south of, you know, like Westport and Hokitika and down towards Franz Joseph. They could be seeing, um, you know, a few hundred millimetres as well, maybe up, you know, four or five hundred millimetres. And then the North Island's got one to two hundred millimetres coming through over the next few days. But yeah, it's really that northwestern corner uh, of the South Island, west of Nelson, that is looking most exposed to these really big rainfall numbers, uh, numbers over the next four to five days, but especially today and tomorrow. Mm, batting down the hatches. Hey, thanks, Philip. Philip Duncan there from Weatherwatch. It is uh, 21 minutes to six. I'm Nick Trubridge, and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, we'll find out uh, about a breakthrough study that has come as music to the ears of some people suffering from the debilitating condition tinnitus. And Nicola Willis, the National Party Deputy Leader, will join us to discuss the latest allegations of bullying by Labour MP Gaurav Sharma against his own party. Is there a culture of bullying in our halls of power? The professionals of Morning Report are up after six and for a very quick preview of our flagship news programme is Susie Ferguson. Good morning. Kia ora, how are you? Yeah, very well. What's on the agenda, Susie? Well, we're going to be taking a good look at what is happening on the West Coast and in the Buller Districts, uh, also Tasman as well. Of course, the heavy rain, I think, has started. Flooding and landslips are forecast uh, likely as this heavy rain is beginning to fall. So we'll be checking in with mayors and with civil defence to see how the region is faring as that weather begins to come into the country. Also, Jacinda Ardern calling a special Labour caucus meeting to discuss backbench MP Gaurav Sharma. Also, a Māori patient who ultimately uh, received inadequate treatment at Whangi, Whanganui Hospital. It was a uh, treatment that led to his death. Uh, we're going to be hearing that story this morning. And also white supremacist Philip Arps is wanting to be on a school board in Christchurch. We will hear the very latest on that. It's all coming up after six.
Thanks, Susie. Heaps of variety this morning. Uh, don't miss it. It's on in about uh, 16, 16 minutes or so. Uh, do stay tuned. Right, the University of Auckland say their latest trial is likely to have a direct impact on future treatment of tinnitus. The results were positive, with the majority of trialists citing uh, improvements in their condition. Reporter Leonard Powell spoke to some of those people whose lives have been changed as a result. People with tinnitus hear all sorts of different things. Cicadas, hissing or popping, it's a relentless ringing sensation in your ear that can be so debilitating, sufferers often can't do simple tasks such as think, listen or sleep without the sound piercing through their head. It's experienced to some degree by 5 to 43% of the population, depending on definition and population sampled. Like many who are diagnosed with tinnitus, Kim Santavani felt helpless when her GP couldn't offer any solutions. Oh, I think a lot of people probably like I did just thought, well, you've just got to suck up and deal with it, right? Because there's no cure. They can't give you anything, they can't give you a pill. There's no cure for tinnitus, but the University of Auckland has been working away on trials involving 61 patients split into two groups. The first group of 31 using a digital therapeutic approach noted a clinically meaningful change for two-thirds of trialists. This group used a specialised app and were given both Bluetooth bone conduction headphones as well as a neck pillow speaker to play their own customised sounds meant to mask their tinnitus frequency. As the findings of the latest trial are released in the Frontiers of Neurology journal, Auckland University Audiology Research Fellow Dr Phil Sanders says they've made a breakthrough. This doesn't work for everyone, but you know the majority of the people in the, in the group that received our app treatment, our digital therapeutic, I think 65% of them showed a clinically meaningful benefit from using the treatment. For some of them, it was totally life-changing. Others, they were like, oh yeah, it's helped a little. The participants from both groups who couldn't be helped remain a work in progress, but Auckland University is committed to making their lives better. There's always some people who this wasn't quite right for, and so we're working on enhancing it and finding out why that might be and how we can improve it so it can help more people. Kim Santavani is one of those who was helped by the trial. She got tinnitus 20 years ago as a result of a bad flu that got into her eardrums. The trial, Kim says, was music to her ears. I found it was really useful for me. There were periods where actually I had total silence, which I haven't had in years in my head. And it was like very obvious silence. I kind of stop and go, oh my God, I'm silent. My God, this thing's working for me. Kim says after going in with low expectations, it's been a revelation. Well, it was because I was sort of the blasé about like you, you read enough to know that they can't cure it. So you go, okay, what is this actually going to do? Is it actually going to do anything? I was a bit sort of like, oh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Not really thinking it would have as dramatic effect on the sound as it did. Kim explains how sounds are matched to drown out the constant buzz. When they do the hearing test, they actually also work out the level of the sound in your head as well. And so they match that sound so that it basically it's covering up what you are hearing in your head is what he does. So it was just like a white noise really for me. Phil could define that down by running varying sounds in my head till I actually couldn't hear the sound in my head. Fellow trialist Susan Vucich also had a positive experience. The cancer survivor first encountered tinnitus five years ago due to chemotherapy and reached out to get involved after seeing a post about the trial online. After being sent home with two headsets to wear for two hours each day, Susan was able to shake off the anxiety that tinnitus would create around getting to sleep. I immediately found it really beneficial 
because the sounds that Phil had tailored exactly for my pitch and tone and volume of tinnitus, I was able to sleep. I was able to go to bed relaxed knowing that it would mask my tinnitus. Susan now uses the headset every night without fail and even through struggles it's continued to help her condition. It's been hugely beneficial to me. I'm so pleased that I was proactive and sought it because I've heard that once you have tinnitus it's for life basically but it's certainly way better and I mean all all that I've been through with the COVID vaccines and COVID and flu and it has got really bad during those times but then it has reverted back to that better level each time since I've done the trial so I'm wrapped, I'm really pleased. Kim Santavani also still uses the app after the trial has finished and intends to continue doing so. I actually use it when I go walking instead of listening to music, I listen to that. And you have favourites about what works really well, like the sound of waterfalls and rivers is really good for me. They have different sounds in there as well. There's some things that I can't cope with. And there's training games as well, like listening to sounds so you can see where the sound's coming from. Auckland University are now optimising the app and plan to undergo further clinical trials in hopes of FDA approval and an American launch in the future. Leonard Powell with that report. Politics now when the Labour caucus is due to meet this week to deal with the allegations of bullying levelled by Hamilton West MP Gaurav Sharma against his own party as Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern took the podium for her weekly post-Cabinet press conference yesterday. Mr Sharma shared screenshots of messages he claimed were from fellow MPs alleging bullying by former party whip Kieran McAnulty. So I discussed the situation with National Party Deputy Leader Nicola Willis and started by asking how she thinks Labour has dealt with the allegations of bullying within their own ranks. Well look, this is not something that, and I can only speak for the National Party, but this is not something that I've experienced in our caucus and I would be careful to draw a brush across all of Parliament. What I would say is that the Francis Review, which was commissioned a few years ago, recommended an independent commissioner into parliamentary standards be formed. That's something that's got support from a range of parties in Parliament, and I think the sooner that can be set up, the better. There does appear to be some issues of individual instances, though, doesn't there? Well, look, and yes, there does, and each of those need to be responded to on their own merits and by the parties involved. And as I said, when it comes to allegations in the Labor Party, those are for the Labor Party and for Jacinda Ardern to respond to. In terms of allegations made about Sam Uffendale, obviously National has begun our own independent investigation into those. Obviously, Chris Luxon has talked about changing the the vetting process for MPs, for your MPs. What will that involve? Well, we've already made some improvements this year, which uh, included strengthened vetting vetting and reference checking to all new candidates as well as current MPs. And obviously, following the investigation that's currently underway, further uh, tweaks may be made. For MPs, the process means that we will have to resubmit those application forms, submit references and expect them to be checked over. So existing MPs are going to have to go through this, existing national MPs? That's right. When does that process start? It starts at the top and, and trickles down? 
That's right. Chris Luxon has already gone through the process and uh, obviously has come through it well. Why bring it in, though? Because, you know, there are always going to be, well, not always, but in many cases there are going to be instances of things people have done in the past that don't necessarily define them, as we've talked about a lot over the last week. So why do this? Look, I think you're absolutely right. If the bar to entry to Parliament is that everyone has a perfect past, we wouldn't have many MPs. And in fact, the Parliament wouldn't be very representative, in my view. What we are trying to provide in our selection process is an avenue through which, if any serious concerns existed, they could be raised, worked through and addressed. What's your threshold for something that would make you, I suppose, look at it and think, hmm, maybe there's some further action we need to take there? And will those things be made public? Well, it'd have to be approached on a case-by-case basis. It would depend on the individual and the individual issues raised. And look, I don't think that those are things that would be made public. Those are things that would be worked through in confidence. Obviously, when it comes to members of parliament, matters of their selection and election are ultimately subject to the very real public scrutiny of the democratic process. And that's something we wholeheartedly support. So what holes are there in that current process as it stands? Well, we've currently got an independent investigation underway into allegations raised in relation to Sam Uffendale. I don't want to prejudice that process, but it's important that it it take its course. Absolutely not, but you've already made the decision to change the vetting process, so you (laughs) must have identified some holes. We actually made that decision prior to the Tauranga by-election. And that was following our campaign review following the 2020 election, uh, where that was one of the issues highlighted for improvement. Let's go to your party's welfare policy. Will that involve sanctions for job seeker beneficiaries with disabilities and health problems? Well, look, I just want to start by saying that if people are unable to work, they don't go on a job seeker benefit, they go on a supported living payment. And we are not proposing any changes to that. The second thing is that where people are on a job seeker's benefit, whether or not they're sick or have a disability, National will not give up on them. We believe they have just as much of a right to be engaged in an effective jobs plan which helps support them and their needs and to find them a pathway back into the workforce. So if they are engaged in that jobs plan and they're doing their bit, then they will not be sanctioned. The only circumstance in which they could be sanctioned is if they weren't meeting their obligations, whether that was turning up to appointments, uh, whether that was taking support to get their driver's licence, help with counselling, etc. But if someone can't find a job, that in itself would not be grounds for sanction. The point is, are they engaged in good faith in that jobs plan? Are they doing their bit? And are they fulfilling their part of the bargain? So Mr Luxon classified it yesterday, and I'm quoting here, he said, yes, if they refuse to participate in their job plan, we will employ the sanctions. That's effectively what you're saying. If, if there's a plan that has been come up with here and they don't stick to it, then there will be sanctions. Yes, if they are engaged in the plan, but no one will hire them, they're not going to be sanctioned for that because that's not on them. They won't be sanctioned if they're engaged in their jobs plan, no matter the circumstance. But at the point at which they disengage from their jobs plan, they're no longer uh, prepared to willingly receive that support or do their bit to get the help they need, then yes, the potential for sanction is there. Who designs the job plan? The jobs plan is designed by the jobs coach who 
we will engage via the community organisations and it will be for those community organisations to come up with a plan that's realistic and that is most likely to help someone into work. Do you have more detail on how these job coaches are going to work? I think last time we spoke you you said it would be roughly one job coach to 20 people. Is that still the case? Yes, that's the basis on which we've estimated the numbers. The key principle that we're applying differently from the status quo is that where MSD currently have a very hands-off approach, what we want to see is community organisations taking a very tailored, hands-on approach where they work with individuals, where they base the support on those individual needs and they respond to them. And we want community organisations to be heavily incentivised so that where they get people into work, that is the success that we are driving for. So, so with an individual who, let's say, has formulated a job plan with that job coach, is it then on the job coach to flag in unfortunate circumstances the fact that maybe that job plan hasn't been stuck to? Who who is the onus on, I suppose, is the question? Yes, that's right. We would expect the job coach to report to MSD, look, this person is no longer complying with their job plan. I've given them lots of chances. I've tried with them. It's not working. And then the sanctions could be applied. And those sanctions could be... Those sanctions could range from requiring money management for that person or reducing their benefit. Let's go back to the job coaches. We spoke about these a little bit last week. You remain confident that you are going to be able to find individuals who are willing to take 20 people along this ride with them, are going to be able to set up job plans, are then going to report back to MSD if there are any issues all of those things, that will all be on them and you're confident you can find those people? Well, yes. And I think the transformative thing about this policy is that right now, young people who are on a job seeker benefit often don't have anyone looking out for them. And what we're saying is they deserve a better deal than that. Let's get someone who genuinely cares about them, who's invested in them, knows what they need, knows what the barriers are to them working, knows what the things are that are getting in the way, and is working through them to overcome those barriers. And we think some of our community organisations are very well placed to do that. Many of them are engaged in this sort of work already. They want to dial it up. Here's a way of doing that. National Party Deputy Leader Nicola Willis there. Right, before we go, a little bit of your feedback. David says uh, on tinnitus, he's got it as the result of being an 86-year-old ex-pro aviator. Uh, and to be honest, he really takes notice of it. He just ignores it. Uh, and uh, bullies, when I was bullied at school, I hit back. What are these people on about? Dave in Wellington says, well, you can't always use your fist, Dave. Sometimes uh, sometimes a hug's nicer. You know, friends, not fists. Let's put it that way. Hey, that's it from us. We'll be back tomorrow. Morning Report is next. Uh, see you for Hump Day. Woo! Woo!